Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. John Newfeld will look at Matthew's unique account of one of the greatest events in history. And this is not your typical Christmas story. So if you have a Bible nearby, open it to Matthew chapter 1, and let's go back to the Bible with Dr. Newfeld. If you invited Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, to be your Christmas speaker, oh, let's say at an office Christmas banquet or even a, a church Christmas banquet, you know, the kind that comes with lights and decoration and, and turkey and stuffing and everyone's dressed in a, in a formal way. And before the evening is over, gifts that were thoughtfully chosen for everyone are handed out and, and a special thank you to everyone who has distinguished themselves this last year. I mean, that kind of Christmas banquet. And then you have a special speaker who's supposed to say something meaningful about Christmas and at just such a banquet, and in some miraculous fashion, you get Matthew to speak. What do you think he might say? Remember, he was one of the eyewitnesses who actually saw the ministry of Jesus. He was one of the 12 men especially chosen by Jesus, trained by him, and he most likely took meticulous notes of all that Jesus said and did. And that would be quite a coup to get a a Christmas speaker like that. And how would he describe the Christmas story? I expect his Christmas speech would would surprise everyone because when he got up to tell what Christmas means, he would tell a story just in the way he does in his best-selling book. He would tell the story as a trained, articulate, and meticulous Jewish scribe who took notes of things the rest of us may not have found as fascinating as he did. You know, I can see Matthew getting to the podium and telling those at the Christmas banquet who were expecting maybe a personal memory of Jesus, maybe something about an interview that he had done with Mary about the childhood memories of Jesus. I mean, something cute he did. We would want something sentimental. But Matthew wouldn't do any of that. Instead, after our Christmas banquet meal, when we're all feeling a bit happy and and settle in and wait to hear what he has to say— he would begin with these words. He'd say, I want to tell you about the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then he'd launch into a genealogy which would contain 42 names, some of the names that we hadn't heard before, and then he'd categorize the names to coincide with three distinct periods of Jewish history. And that would take him some time to go through all those names, and that would be his lengthy introduction to his speech. And you could almost imagine the knowing looks that would be traded around the room. I mean, who invited this guy? I wonder how long he's going to talk. I wonder if he knows we wanted to hear a more traditional rendering of the Christmas story. And I wonder if we can sneak out of here before anyone notices that I'm really gone. See, the reaction at our imaginary banquet is the same reaction that many people get when they begin to read the New Testament, because remember that Matthew's gospel is the first book in the New Testament, and most of us, when we do read Matthew's gospel, just skip over those first 17 verses because they don't sound that interesting. I actually don't remember hearing the Christmas story told with a thorough analysis of a lengthy genealogy at the beginning of Matthew containing the 42 names grouped into three categories. But what I say next may sound harsh, but the reason we don't really get that excited about the beginning of Matthew is because we want to understand the story of Jesus in our terms. And Matthew is not interested in telling that kind of story. The story of Jesus, which includes the story of his birth and what that birth actually meant, is a profoundly Jewish story written the way Old Testament stories are usually written. 
Let me begin by reading it. It simply says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, this word genealogy found in verse 1 is the same word that we find in the 18th verse of the same chapter. In verse 18, I mean, the, the real first verse that we're interested in reading, you know what I'm talking about. It goes this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When we read that, we say, ah, finally, we're going to get to the real Christmas story. However, what the English reader can't see is that the word for genealogy in Matthew 1 verse 1 and the word for birth in Matthew 1 18 is actually the same Greek word. It's the word we get our English word Genesis from. It means origins or how things came to be. So Matthew begins with the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, or later, the Genesis of Jesus took place in this way. Now, when you go to the first book of the Bible, which, of course, is the book of Genesis, you find that it is the book of origins. It tells you the origins of creation, the the origins of the human race, the origins of sin, the origins of God's plan to save a ruined humanity by choosing a special people to be his own. Genesis tells us of the origin of the Jews, or technically, the origin of the people of Israel, and that's how they came to be. And this is what makes Matthew so fascinating. If you want to hear the story of Christmas, Matthew says, I need to tell you how Jesus Christ came to be. What are his origins, and more so, how are his origins deeply rooted in the story of Israel? Since the book of Matthew is a profoundly Jewish book, Matthew's book of origins must take us back to the origins of the Old Testament story. Matthew wants us to know that he can't deal with the story of Jesus or about Christmas if we don't look back to God's dealings at the beginning of human history or how God planned to bring hope to a humanity that had been ruined by sin. And so that's how Matthew begins, the book of the origins or Genesis, or genealogy of Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the sentence. Let's listen to how the first sentence of the New Testament actually reads. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in order to tell this story, first of all, Matthew says, You must know that Jesus Christ is the son of David. Every single Jew would immediately know what he was saying. According to 2 Samuel 7, and that's the key passage, God promises King David that one of his offspring, one of his direct descendants coming after him, would inherit his throne and his kingdom. And when he did that, the kingdom of David would rule the entire earth, and that kingdom would never end. David's kingdom would restore what had been lost in the fall of the human race. David's kingdom would defeat sin, and it would restore the entire earth to what God intended it to be. That's why for anyone studying the Old Testament, the moment of David's kingdom is the seminal point of human history. God has told us that this present age, with its wars and death and pain and and sin and loss, the old evil age, this age, will come to an end, and the new age will arrive when David's descendants ascend to his ancient throne. In fact, reflecting on the promise recorded in 2 Samuel 7, which is the historical narrative, David would describe that promise later on in poetry. 
In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, David writes, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, David knew that his kingdom was destined to rule the earth. He also knew that that he personally wouldn't live to see it, but that one of his descendants would, and that in that day, when his long-awaited descendant, the anointed one, or what we now call the Messiah or the Christ, this one would sit on his throne, and then sin's rule and dominion over the nations would be permanently broken. And that's how Matthew begins the Christmas story. That's why he doesn't just say the origins of Jesus, but rather the origins of Jesus Christ. Christ, if you don't know it yet, is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's the Greek way of saying the origins of Jesus the Messiah, the direct descendant of David. Yeah, that one destined to rule the world. But this needs some explanation. So then Matthew adds something else he feels compelled to add. Jesus is also, he says, the son of Abraham. See, of course, Abraham is the the founder of the Jewish nation, but he is so much more. God made a promise to Abraham, and a part of that promise was recorded for us in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, which says, And in your offspring, that is, in your descendants, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, I hope you notice that the one who will rule the earth, the one who is the great king, is also the one who will bless all all the nations of the earth. In Jesus, at least, that's what Matthew wants us to know when he constructs his genealogy. In Jesus is the world's true ruler who comes not as a despot or as a tyrannical dictator, but he comes to us in tender love and who is intent on blessing a sin-cursed and ruined world. That's all that this earth has hoped for. That's the entire story of the Old Testament. And this story that Matthew tells, beginning with Genesis, is the genesis of how this came to be. More about this when we come back. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's the real Christmas story. Matthew begins his account by listing the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He starts the Gospel of Matthew in this way so that we might understand the significance of Jesus' family origin. Ultimately, Jesus came into the world to free us from our sins. In just a moment, we'll continue looking into the importance of Matthew's genealogy. Thanks so much for listening. You know, at Back to the Bible Canada, we want to help you move forward in your walk with Jesus every day, whether that's on the air or online, through our new app or our resources that we provide. Well, we've just created a great new product, which you're sure to enjoy. Quiet Spaces, a 30-day devotional by Dr. John Newfeld, and it's perfect for your daily devotions any month of the year. These reflections are not only theologically rich, but practical and encouraging as Dr. Newfeld guides us on how to live according to the Word. We want to send you this exclusive resource as our free gift to you, and a great resource to begin the new year. So don't be disappointed. Ask for your copy of Quiet Spaces today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. 
We've all heard of people who want to rule the earth, but as is almost always the case, their rule has never resulted in blessing. But this one, says Matthew, this one will rule, this one is the desired of all nations. In a world cursed by Adam's fall, in a, in a world that has been captured by Satan's dominion, in a world in which the nations are ruled by Satan's tyranny, this one, Jesus, is the one destined to restore that which has been lost through the promise given to Israel. And that's Matthew's point. His gospel, his good news, his, his account of the person of Jesus, beginning with Jesus' birth. The Christmas story is framed within Judaism as the fulfillment of the longings of Israel. So that's the Jesus that we're talking about. You know, I remember a number of years ago uh, reading about an NFL player who said, if Jesus were alive today, I bet he'd be the best quarterback the game had ever seen. I wonder if you've ever noticed that everyone tries to reinterpret Jesus to make him suitable to their context. But that only succeeds in distorting the real Jesus. The real Jesus is not the world's greatest possibility thinker or the world's greatest athlete or the world's greatest politician or the world's best wealth manager or even the world's greatest religious thinker or rabbi. He is the Jewish Messiah straight up. That's the story. So with the entrance of Christ into the world, it's that story that we're considering. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, the first 16 verses of the New Testament were presented with a series of names as a part of a genealogy which stretches from Abraham, who would have been born somewhere around 2166 BC until the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Now, Jesus was probably born around 4 BC. Hey, I know, I know. The Gregorian calendar we use today got the date wrong, but, but that's not a significant issue. What is, is that Matthew presents us with a genealogy that covers close to 2,200 years. And for anyone who's biblically literate, the list of names we find in verses 2 to 11 are actually quite familiar. See, if you know your Bible, you'll know every single name that's mentioned there and the story behind each one. And as we read the names and ponder them, it's, it's fascinating to see the saints and sinners presented there. See, the first grouping of names starts with Abraham and ends with David. There we find a list of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their great big dysfunctional family. And then Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons, well, he's an interesting man because you'll remember it was his idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. And the next name Matthew mentions, well, that's a bit complicated. There are two sons of Judah mentioned. They are Perez and they are Zerah. Indeed, you might think that's all you need to know about them, but a little addition is put into Matthew's text. He says these boys came from a mother, Tamar. So the first time in this genealogy, Matthew actually mentions a woman, and the reason for that is because Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Yeah, it wasn't his wife, and yes, he did have twin boys with his daughter-in-law, and that's because, well, she disguised her identity, and he thought she was a prostitute, and I don't know if you know the rest of the story, but it, it's a mess. And Matthew injects her name here because he wants us to remember the mess. Another woman that Matthew mentions is a prostitute by the name of Rahab. That's really interesting. Interesting and really messy. Now we come to the second grouping of names. And like the first one, the second grouping contains a list very familiar to many of us who know our Bibles, from King David to King Jehoiakim. 
And Matthew mentions his brothers, which leads us to think of King Zedekiah, who was king when the Babylonians broke into Jerusalem and burned it and deported most of the population. Of this time, the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36, the Babylonians killed the young men of Jerusalem with a sword, that they had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aging. What started so hopefully in David, when God promised him a son who would rule the earth and defeat sin, ended in such misery and such despair and such a triumph of evil. All the kings that Matthew mentions in his genealogy, from David to Jehoiakim, that list of 14 kings, about half of them were men of faith, and the other half, well, they were scoundrels. No, real, horrifyingly evil men. Like King Ahaz, who sacrificed his own son as a burnt offering to a pagan god. And like King Manasseh, who did more evil, says the Bible, than any other king in Jerusalem before or after him, or for that matter, he did more evil than any of the kings of the nations around him. Now, when you think about it, even the kings who were men of faith, well, even they were known for their striking sins, like David and his crime of adultery and murder and righteous King Hezekiah, who showed the Lord's treasures to Israel's enemies and thus invited a later invasion. It's interesting that Matthew brings this list of people, saints and sinners, hopeful people, interspersed with tyrants and persecutors and moral degenerates. And so when you come to the last part of the genealogy from verses 12 to 16, where you get those names that a a biblically literate person for the most part doesn't recognize, we see the names of those who suffered the consequences of the sins of their fathers, sins that led to the Babylonian captivity and the humbling of Israel, sins that led Israel never to regain their former status. Sins that led Israel to be an insignificant, tiny nation under the brutal dictatorship of Rome. And here's the kicker. If the truth be told, in spite of the promise, David's throne was no ideal throne. If David or his descendants had actually succeeded in ruling the earth, well, the earth would have been in no better shape than it is today. And that's the majesty of the Old Testament. There's an amazing promise, to be sure, but unflinchingly. The Old Testament tells us about the foibles of the men who would rule the earth and the disastrous consequences that came from them. See, what we need is a new beginning, a genesis, and that, says Matthew, is where the story of Jesus begins. At the end of Matthew's long genealogy comes a statement that sums up everything. Verse 17 reads, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. See, this is a typical Jewish way of doing genealogies. The Jews typically recorded some names and omitted others, and that's precisely what Matthew does. To put a technical spit on this, there are in fact more than 14 times 14 times 14 generations from Abraham to Christ. It doesn't work out that neatly. But Matthew's not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. He knows that his readers are Jewish and know their Old Testament very well and also know exactly what it is that he's communicating. Why 14 names in each section? Well, the Jews of Jesus' time had a habit of assigning numerical values to every single letter. The name David, which stands at the center of this genealogy, had in Hebrew only three letters. Since the Jews didn't write out any vowels, they only had consonants. So David was simply D-V-D. 
the numerical value for d is 4, v is 6, and d again is 4. So 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals 14. The numerical value for the name David is 14, and the meaning is simply, especially if you're a Jew. The story of Jesus is the story of the king, not just any king. This is the story of the great king who is able to accomplish what no other king was able to accomplish before him. He will fulfill all that God has promised in the Old Testament. This is the story of the Messiah. So it's Christmas, and let me ask you the question again. Which story of Christmas do you want? Romantic sentimentality, or the one prophesied since the beginning of the origin of the earth, who has come to destroy Satan, defeat sin and death and rebellion, and rule the nations with the power of God? And that's the story of Christmas. Matthew records Jesus saying these words, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. The point is simple. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the reign of God. John, you portrayed this genealogy as really the the springboard for the whole Christmas story, but it really envelops the whole Bible, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we do need to read the Old Testament and read into the Old Testament the story of the life of Jesus. Um, I think that we need to be trained more to know how to do this. Uh, We need to find Jesus in some of the great promises that were made. But we need to also see, as the Old Testament works its way through, that, in fact, it is getting to the highlight. And so genealogies, when we read the New Testament, the genealogies hearken back to the things that God had prepared for when Christ actually occurred. So never go by the genealogies quickly. Make sure you take some time and attempt to understand them. It's interesting to go through the genealogy of Jesus and understand the importance of it and every person that it represents. It was promised to David that his kingdom would rule the world, and he knew he wouldn't live to see it. Jesus was a part of the line of David. His story fulfills what was promised to David. He came to destroy Satan, defeat death and sin, and rule all nations with the power of God. And of course, we know that's exactly what he did. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will teach us on the significance of the conception of Jesus. This is a bit of a hot issue for some, so you won't want to miss it. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. For the past 58 years, we've built this ministry upon the foundation of one thing that is central to all we do, the Bible. At Back to the Bible Canada, we exist to provide both believers and even non-believers with a real uncompromised truth of what God's Word actually says. And it's His story that we're compelled to share every day on the radio, online, via email, print, our new app, and much more. With God's grace, we believe this mission that has been given to us will continue to grow in its impact. But as 2015 comes to a close, we're asking you to join us in making this a reality. With the help of you, our faithful friends and listeners, we can reach our year-end goal of $390,000. It may seem overwhelming, but let's put it this way. It would only take 390 committed partners from right across Canada to give $1,000 each. The point is not the amount you can give. Every gift is important. The point is this goal will and can be reached with your generosity. 
So would you take the step of commitment today and give so that Canadians of all ages and backgrounds might hear and be changed by the very words of life, the Word who became flesh. Please help us to continue this legacy of faithful Bible teaching. Your gifts enable ordinary people just like you to hear the greatest story ever told. You can give online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.